Thanks, Jonathan. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. It's so good to be with you this morning as we uh, continue together on this journey we've been on through the prophet Ezekiel this summer. Uh, today, we'll be looking at these words from Ezekiel 34. And as we prepare to do that, um, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for these words that are uh, difficult, that are formative, that are inviting, that are hopeful. God, we pray that as we um, seek to understand them in more depth, God, that you would meet us there, that this wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise, but that it would be a heart exercise, that you would shape and mold us to be people who um, bear your image more fully. God, that is our desire and our hope. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the heart of our text from Ezekiel today strongly engages um, a word, a notion that we're going to talk a lot about today, and that word is power. Power. Uh, this text looks at how uh, kind of from one day to the next, one decision to the next, as people who have a will, even free will, we choose to use the influence that we have. Now, along these lines, um, we had an interesting thing happen in our household this week. I've mentioned before, I have a young son, almost two years old, and he learned at a 4th of July party with our beloved family uh, how to throw a punch. One of his aunties taught him. I then told said auntie, please start having children so I can return the favor. And all of this was sort of lighthearted and fun until uh, later in the week, I'm sitting at home, it's just my son and I, he's sitting on my lap, and uh, we're having a fun time playing, singing wheels on the bus, and he, out of nowhere, just raises his fist and, and gives me a right hook right to the, the left side of my face. Um, and I reacted, it was hardly painful, he's so little, but it was shocking enough that like my facial expression sort of changed. And little Mark is sitting on my lap and he read my reaction and he knew almost instantaneously, like I've done something wrong, I've hurt my mom. And as this registered, his little frame crumpled and he began to cry and he just said over and over again, uh-oh, uh-oh. I was like, yeah, yeah, uh-oh for sure. Um, but in that moment, I was struck by the connections that his little mind is beginning to make. Mark is learning that his actions actually have impact beyond himself, that his little story and how he chooses to live that story will have repercussions for better or for worse beyond him. Now, clearly, this is something he's learning very slowly because a couple days later, he did the same thing again, this time to his father, thankfully. Um, <laughs> But I share this because part of what makes Mark's existence different than our dog Ronin or different than our betta fish who doesn't have a name, um, different than the rest of the created order, part of what Mark's, makes Mark human is this thing we call influence, impact. You could call it power. Now, that's not to say that animals and forces of nature lack power, but it is to say that the Genesis 1 narrative informs us that as, as, as image bearers of God, we are called to yield that power in a way that is different from the rest of creation. Like, we're unique in that. Genesis 1.28 highlights this as God instructs the first humans with these words, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, that's an important word, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now that word dominion, um, theologically it means the capacity and the responsibility to act meaningfully on behalf of the flourishing of the rest of creation. 
In other words, the human vocation, the human mission, the human calling from the very beginning is to use power for the impact of good, to use power to actually will the good for the rest of creation. And this command that God gives at the very beginning of the human story uh, for people to use their power in a certain way is actually a reflection, a mirror of God's self, right? God used his power to do this thing, to create the world, to give life, to enable it to flourish. And then he says, you humans, you man and woman, go do the same thing. Don't punch your mom. (laughs) And from that point forward throughout human history until now, The greatest sorrows and the greatest triumphs have been determined by how we answer this simple but profound question, how will you, image bearers, use your power? The great and tortured philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, Will to Power, challenges this notion that any person or religious movement, and he's particularly hard on Christianity, can use their power for good. Instead of someone, you know, he argues that as humans, we are all on this, the exact same quest, which is to become master over all our space, like to become the most powerful. And he says, all religion, all seemingly good actions taken on behalf of humans are simply a means to domination. In college, I took a course on Nietzsche philosophy, and I'll never forget my professor, while not endorsing Nietzsche's view, was an adamant proponent that Christians read and take seriously his perspective. Take seriously that Nietzsche had identified and prophetically captured in Christian speak this little word that we call sin. And if we're not careful, we can all too easily lose sight of this original calling in Genesis 1 to reflect the image of God to the world in our various spheres. And we can easily fall privy to the trap that we see in Nietzsche's writing, that we see in Genesis 3, where God tells the first humans, do not eat from this particular tree. In other words, part of how you are going to use your power to reflect my image is to actually exhibit restraint. Like, stay away. But the serpent tells them, do it, eat from this tree. It's what you want. You will become like God. And so there's this this switch that happens whereby our original vocation to use our influence to reflect God is now constantly at odds with a human desire for selfish gain. And friends, I don't have to tell you this or convince you of it. We experience it every day. Consumption of goods without a second thought as to the impact of that consumption, the impact it has on our globe, on the people who inhabit it. An ability to admit, uh, an inability to admit our wrongs in a relationship or a friendship because to do, do so feels like a diminishment or a threat to our own power. A propensity to live wearing a constant mask because we fear that if people really saw us, we'd actually be giving them something, relinquishing a bit of our power to them. A subtle, maybe even unconscious sense of superiority towards people who are less educated than you, less accomplished than you, speak a different language than you, look different than you. And so all too often, we go about playing the power and posturing game of Genesis 3 instead of living out this dominion call, the image bearer call of Genesis 1. And this is all really important context for the text that we're looking at today because it's precisely this trap into which Israel has fallen. In Ezekiel 34, God speaks through the prophet to Israel, God's people who are living in exile. That means they're living away from their homeland, not by their own choice, in a place called Babylon. 
And God essentially reminds Israel without mixing words that their highest calling is to use their power in a particular way so that creation will flourish. And to do this, God engages the the image, the metaphor that we see all throughout scripture of the shepherd. The good shepherd, as we'll see, is one who uses their influence to reflect God to the world. And at this moment in history, Israel is full of what the author calls false shepherds. People who are, are living into that Genesis 3 story. So today as we'll consider our own calling to be image bearers, to use our influence and power in a certain way, we're going to look at three realities of the shepherd that we see in Ezekiel. First, shepherds use their power to love. Second, shepherds are shaped in exile. And third, shepherds know the true shepherd. So we begin by looking at this notion that shepherds use their power to love. In Ezekiel 34, the prophet makes it clear that this is not what those with influence are currently doing. In verse three, the prophet says, this of the shepherds, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. Now I wanna focus for a moment on that statement, you clothe yourselves with wool. The implication here is that the shepherd takes the wool from the vulnerable sheep, takes their coat, and then uses that wool to make something that will benefit themselves while the sheep are left worse off than they were before. They use their power for individual gain. And good old Nietzsche would argue, somewhat cynically of course, he would say, of course they do. This is what power is for, self-promotion. This is Napoleon. This is the Inquisitions. This is Jim Crow. This is what we do with power. This is you earlier this week, Pastor Abby when you use your words as to ever so slightly manipulate the truth in such a way that you cast yourself in a better light than someone else. And you did it subtly and you did it artfully, but you did it. What is that if not using your power to clothe, using your words to clothe yourselves in, yourself in wool? This is what we do so often with our influence, our power, whether it be our consumer power, the power of our words, the power of how we choose to spend our time, the power of how we choose to think or not think about our privilege. So often we fall into this Genesis 3 paradigm which says, just a bit more for you and you'll be like God. Just a bit more and you'll be content. You'll be satisfied. That is these shepherds. But let's take a moment here and look at the picture that contrasts this from John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about the good shepherd. He actually says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then just a few chapters later in in John 15, Jesus will call the act of the good shepherd the greatest expression of love. See, the true shepherd, Jesus says, uses their power not to gain, but to give. Not to exclusively will their own good, but to will the good of others. Now, I think we can pretty readily agree that this calling to use our influence of love is clearly articulated as a value in Scripture. Like, I hope we're all on the same page as that, same page in that. However, I think the more pertinent question is this, why is this calling so difficult for us to actually embody? Here's the short answer that Ezekiel hints at. Power expressed in love always involves taking meaningful risk. And meaningful risk is difficult. 
I'll um, unfortunately never forget the very awkward moment in our relationship where Sam and I did that thing where we told each other we loved each other for the first time. Um, some of you have been there and you know what I'm talking about. We were sitting on the couch at my apartment and I said to him, you know, Sam, I have something I want to tell you, but it feels risky and I'm nervous. And I was hoping this comment would like prompt him to like say the thing and then I could say it back and then um, I would feel safer and whatnot, but it didn't work. He didn't get it. And so um, I worked up the courage and I said it. I said, I love you. And, and here's why I love you. I want to tell you what that means to me. And he looked up at me and he responded with a single word. He said, thanks. <laughs> he then let the suspense linger for a few hours uh, before then calling me on his way home to say, indeed, he felt the same way, at which point I told him I'd since changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, this happened. But you get the point of the illustration. Love, by its very nature, is risky. It puts us in a vulnerable place. We give something away without the assurance that we'll receive in return. And so the people of influence in Israel, they've eaten the best food. Why? Well, why not? To give that food to people in need would be risky. They'd lose something, comfort, satisfaction. We've taken the wool and made, uh, they've taken the wool and made themselves a jacket because the alternative is their own loss, their own exposure to the elements. Why risk it? They've neglected to go after the lost sheep because they might get stuck in a storm or more likely suffer in the extreme desert heat. What then? See, our calling is to use our power to express love, and love always involves meaningful risk. And so an essential question the prophet raises for us individually and as a community is this, where and how are we using our power to take risks in the name of love? to serve in the woman's shelter, even though it feels vulnerable. <laughs> One woman talked about in the first service, you know, I drove and I didn't know what I was going to say when I got there. I was so nervous. That's risky love. I have to tell you, I found this question exceedingly convicting as I pondered it this week. If you read the totality of Ezekiel 4, you'll see the prophet is speaking primarily to religious leaders, to the priests of Israel in that day. And while I think the heart of the message applies to any and all of us with influence, I couldn't think, help but think about how easy it is for me in my own story to sit safely under the title of pastor, to pontificate on a passage of scripture without ever taking a risk in the name of love the way that true shepherds are called to do. How easy it is for me to hear statistics like there are 21 million people living as modern day slaves. 21 million that's more than the combined populations of London, New York, and Los Angeles in this moment. Stuck. I can hear that statistic, and yet I keep using my personal power in a way that actually keeps that industry afloat. How easy it is for me to see a lonely person standing on our street block and not engage that person in conversation because I don't want to risk feeling awkward. I don't want to risk getting stuck in a conversation that I can't leave. I don't want to risk feeling guilty. How easy it is to convince myself I'm living the noble image-bearing calling of Genesis 1 when really I'm just proving Nietzsche right. It's all about me. The image of the shepherd in Ezekiel 34 invites us to consider another way, to consider how we might use power to love to take meaningful risk on behalf of another. 
What does that look like in your story? Where are you risking? That brings us to the second really important reality we see in Ezekiel 34, which is this, shepherds are shaped in exile. We can think of the word exile more broadly as any space where people are living with a sense of sort of disorientation because they've been separated from like the normal predictability and comforts of life. This is where the Israelites are living, captives in Babylon, taken from their beloved city, Jerusalem. And not only that, but in chapter 33, so just a single chapter before what we read today, a messenger shows up on the scene and informs Ezekiel that uh, Jerusalem has been utterly destroyed. I love the Hebrew here. The word actually implies it's been smashed, like it's gone. Like if you're reading through the book, uh, this is the lowest of low points. This is the moment that Gandalf dies, right? This is the moment you think Aslan is not coming back. This is the moment Luke Skywalker's arm is cut off by Vader. Like this is the moment Bambi's mom, gone, right? Like, spoiler alert. (laughs) But you get the idea. There is no more hoping after this moment that tomorrow we will go home. As far as Israel is concerned, this is the end. And what's interesting is that it's precisely at this low moment in the narrative that the nature of Ezekiel's entire message shifts. Like if you've been here the past several weeks, you know that up until this point, his words have been loaded with necessary critique and judgment because of Israel's misguided ways. And it's precisely in the darkest moment of exile, city smashed, that God says this in verses 11 through 13. I will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will bring them out of the places they have been scattered and bring them into their own land. I will feed them the best food. I will make them lie down. I will bring back the straight. 14 times we see that phrase, I will, I will. I will. Do you see the implication of this shift? See, the city of Jerusalem had become a place not where God's character was reflected um, as a blessing to the world, which is what it was intended to do, but it had become a place of self-indulgence, of self-promotion. Jerusalem and the religion they practiced had actually become an idol, a form of a God replacement, And so God separates his people from this place of perceived security and it's precisely in that moment, the moment of greatest despair and disorientation that a new reality begins to take shape for Israel and here's the heart of that reality. God is enough. God will provide, God will rescue, God will feed, God will gather. God is enough. Several years ago, I was living in Los Angeles attending a tiny church in East Hollywood. And our church had a partnership with uh, a transitional housing unit for folks who had been in prison and were transitioning back into the mainstream world. And many of these folks had addiction addiction backgrounds. And so uh, the group home was meant to kind of help them navigate that first six months where they'd be most prone um, to relapse. So during that time, I met this woman named Anne. She was an Irish immigrant. She'd been in the U.S. for many years, Um, but some time ago, Anne had served a prison term related to a pedestrian accident accident that she'd caused. She'd killed a pedestrian while driving um, while she was high on meth. So as a result of that incident, uh, which had happened some 20 years prior, her children had been taken away. She'd served a prison term. 
And when I met Anne, uh, she worked at this home. She served as a mentor to folks who were coming through the program. And during my time there, she became somewhat of a mentor to me. I lived about two blocks from the home, so we would often just go on walks together. Anne was one of those people who's so full of wisdom, like you just wanted to keep her talking. I once shared with her uh, the struggle that I was having with spending my money in a way that was reflecting my values. And it was kind of embarrassing to talk about, um, but I'll never forget her response. She said, Abby, not a day goes by where I don't think about drugs and how good they made me feel for so long. And every time I think about it, I drop to my knees and I say, there is no greater gift in my life than knowing you, Jesus. Now fast forward a few months, we're out for a walk in our neighborhood and we watch this drug deal happen in front of us, which in that part of Los Angeles wasn't uncommon. Um, But this sparked something for Anne and so sure enough, right then and there on the sidewalk in East Los Angeles, she literally dropped to her knees and prayed that prayer aloud, there is no greater gift in my life than knowing you, Jesus. For some reason I thought that had been like a metaphorical thing that she was talking about, but no, she did it. See, like the Israelites in Babylon, Anne experienced a season of separation from all that, that she, all of which she'd elevated to God's status. In her case, it was drugs. And it was through this season of exile that she was able to detach and reorient herself to the truth, God, you're enough. Like Jesus, being in relationship with you is enough. It's at the very lowest point that God showed up in her story with that promise, I will, I will, I will. And friends, the reason this is so important is that we have to get this right because Ezekiel shows us that where there is idolatry, there will be injustice. In other words, when we elevate things to God's status, it's actually not just about us, it keeps us from embodying the love of the image bearer. The Christian author um, Andy Crouch defines injustice this way. He says, injustice is playing God in the life of another. And he says, idolatry is making a false God. Making a false God. And he advocates that anytime you have idolatry, there will always be injustice. Like it's not just about you, it's about the sphere of influence in which you live. My friend Anne worshiped the idol of a substance high and the result was a person who lost their life. Grave injustice. We worship the idol of nationalism. We lose sight of the people of God's kingdom around the globe who are beloved. We identify as somehow superior and therefore entitled to play God in their life. It's an injustice. We worship the idol of sexuality and we resort to diminishing another person to a commodity, to making them a pawn somehow in our God complex. It's an injustice. And so the good shepherd is formed in exile because it's this place where we're shaped away from idolatry and injustice towards image-bearing love. We learn to say as difficult as it may be, God, you are enough. Like I can, I can stop running after that thing. I can stop believing that promise that this will make you like God. And friends, perhaps for you, the idol isn't drugs. Perhaps it's an addiction that takes another form. Perhaps it's success as you've defined it in your work life. Perhaps it's a particular relationship or your intellect. We've been considering our idols for the last several weeks now as we've worked through Ezekiel. And a next step for you might be to consider 
what uh, exile from that particular idol might look like for you. Maybe you consider taking a break from certain social media platforms, an exile of sorts from the idol of image projection. Maybe it's separating yourself from a particular addiction, technology, alcohol, shopping. Maybe for the next month you're considering taking a two-day Sabbath instead of a single-day Sabbath or no Sabbath as an exile from work because work has become an idol in your life. It's become a way you feel like God instead of a means by which you reflect God. Maybe for you, you need not force an exile because one has come about without your having to manufacture it. A sickness, the death of someone you love, job loss, divorce, financial worries. Some of our dearest friends are walking through a season of heartbreaking infertility. You want to talk about exile. And hear this, regardless of how seasons of exile come about, this is God's promise to his people. I will, I will, I will, 14 times and then some, I will. And scripture is, it's loaded with examples of this. The people of Israel are freed from slavery. They're wandering the desert, learning each new day God will provide. This is Sarah waiting until her 90s for God to make good on his promise of a baby learning to live from one year to the next. In those words, I will. This is Jesus himself who experienced exile, driven to the desert for 40 days without food or water, tempted, learning the enoughness of God the Father so that he could bless the world. And it's so important that we see the direct link here between those first two points. See, our ability to use our power for self-giving love is always dependent on whether we can say, yes, God is enough. That is why in Ezekiel 34, God directly critiques the false shepherds. He says, you have not learned to trust, I will provide. So you take and you take and you take. People are suffering, they're scattered, they're lost. But the flip side of that, and this is the good news, is that when I'm able to live in the plenty of God, when I'm secure, like Paul says in Philippians, when I've learned to be content in all situations, I can stop grabbing at idols and actually learn to give. It's our experience of enoughness, both that I have enough and I am enough, that we can relinquish attachment to idols and take steps of loving risk towards the other, take steps towards using our influence in that Genesis one way. That brings us to the final reality that we see in Ezekiel 34 as it relates to this idea of image bearers. And that reality is this, shepherds know the true shepherd. Shepherds know the true shepherd. Shepherds use their power to love, shepherds are formed in exile, and shepherds know the true shepherd. In verses 23 through 24, the prophet says this, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, what's interesting about this particular text is that the historical King David, the King David that we talk about, that, um, that was prophesied about, that was promised, that King David had ruled Israel during their golden age and died some 400 years before God's people are taken into exile, and Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. In other words, the timeline is all messed up. It would seem on the surface, Ezekiel is predicting something that has already come to pass. 
But of course, we know because of our proximity to history that David's identity is bound to the identity of Jesus, that they're connected throughout scripture by this very sacred lineage. And so when God speaks about the good shepherd David, he's actually pointing beyond David to the Messiah, to the person of Jesus Christ. Now this is significant for us because as image bearers, Ezekiel's invitation for shepherds to live a certain way is connected to, is bound in, is sealed in the redemptive moment of Christ, is sealed in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that sounds good and well and kind of poetic, but what does it really mean? The best way I can think to describe it is by way of an experience I had several years ago. I spent one summer in college working at a camp for folks, uh, students with various physical and intellectual disabilities. And part of the beauty of that experience was that the traditional hierarchies in our world, which tend to elevate certain people and diminish others, were gone. Like, truly, it was, it was unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Folks with various disabilities served in all levels of camp leadership, alongside those we call typically developing. And so by the end of several weeks together, there was this beautiful community that had taken shape where the things in like the real world, which normally define us and separate us, were, were absent. <laughs> like we lived together, we, we loved one another, we learned from each other, despite our differences. The night before we all left, there was a, a sense of mourning, not just because we were leaving, but because this truly otherworldly thing we'd come to know, we now had to, to leave behind. And so as we said our goodbyes, I'll never forget, the camp director spoke to our staff and he encouraged us. He said, don't forget what you've experienced here with your brothers and sisters. And don't buy into the lie that tomorrow you go back to the real world. He said, this is the real world. This is life as God intended it to be. And it's been nearly 10 years since that night at camp, but I still think of those words. I'm still challenged and encouraged by them. They still come to mind when I'm tempted to buy into the false designations of value that culture ascribes to people. This isn't the real world, I remind myself. It's a broken world, we're called into it, but it isn't the real one. And this exchange of realities, this reimagining of power, this is precisely what Jesus' resurrection represents. See, up until the time of Jesus, the most effective source of power in the world was thought to be force and violence. Like the strongest nation on earth was the one with the biggest army, the biggest guns, period. Like you don't mess with that. It was real. And when, when Jesus is crucified on a Roman cross, it's confirmed that the greatest force in the world is still muscle, it's still Rome. When Jesus says, it is finished just before he dies, everyone who hears him assumes it's a statement of like final surrender and defeat. But what they don't know, what they don't predict is that Jesus has actually transfigured the world right down to its basic structure. That in three days he would rise again, proving the only thing more powerful than self-promotion through force is self-giving love. Like this is the real world, not Babylon, not Rome, not the United States of America, not merely using power for self-promotion or self-indulgence. That's not the real world. Instead, every time we use our influence to give, to bless, to encourage, to risk, to love, we are living as our truest selves in the truest of worlds with the greatest of power. And friends, this new reality 
It's a point of significant encouragement for us. It means we can, we can take loving risks as image bearers, not only trusting that God will meet us with a message of enoughness, but, in a, but that in Christ there is victory. Like in Christ it is finished. A couple weeks ago, I read an article in Christianity Today about a church in San Antonio that's ministering to folks, uh, to asylees who have crossed the border and now are working through the process um, of, of gaining asylum. And the article was profound for many reasons, but it talked about how many of the families and children who have crossed the southern border uh, have endured great trauma, whether that be in their country of origin or um, during their journey. And so volunteers at this particular church are trained as they meet folks at the door before they do anything else to physically and literally assume a kneeling posture. And I have to tell you, as I read that part of the story, something in me just switched and I literally wept. (laughs) I'm 20 weeks pregnant. That may have had something to do with it. But regardless, I was so moved by this picture of the church, by people following Christ, not just to a service on Sunday, but to this self-giving way of the cross that actually, actually, actually has the power to change the world, to bless the world, to bless our city. And friends, this is where the prophet Ezekiel has been pointing us all along, towards a love that takes risks, away from our idols and towards the enoughness of God and ultimately into a new reality altogether where the old power is finished and creation flourishes the way God intended it to from the very start. Let's be a church that gets that right. Let's be a church that refuses to live by the rules of the old game. Let's be a church who bears the image of Christ, who gives, who risks, who loves. Let's do that. That's something worth living for. That's, that's where we find our truest selves, our truest calling, the truest power. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are grateful in this moment to be uh, your people. God, we pause just to accept that truth that indeed you are enough. That, that, that whatever we carry, whatever idols we pursue, that whatever's difficult for us in this moment, God, you meet us in that with that continuing promise. You will, you will, you will, you will, you will, you will. And God, I pray that um, that realization would just sink deeply into us, that that would become something that is so embodied in us that we um, are truly able to live as free people, to love as risk-taking people, to not feel the need to protect or to posture or to gain, (laughs) but to give, trusting God that in that is real power, in that is real life, in that the world will be blessed. God, we love you and we're grateful to be your children today. We pray this in your name. Amen.